0: Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris.
1: Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. My name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host here for the next hour on the Talent Talk radio show. We have a great lineup of guests, and I hope you're looking forward to hearing all the great insights from all our guests throughout the year. The Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent management, leadership development, and company culture. And in the business world, talent really looks at a couple of these different types of meanings. First, how it relates to success and how really talented people achieve success. And the second is how talent relates to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates for their companies. This show will explore those two different areas and kind of how they collide at different times, along with how talented individuals impact a company's culture. The guests on the Talent Talk radio show include CEOs, HR executives, entrepreneurs, uh, and business leaders from all different types of industries. And generally what happens is I'm at a networking events, conferences, or speaking, and I have the privileges of meeting these inspiring leaders all the time. So I created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue and hopefully learn some practical advice on cultivating talent, developing leaders, managing culture, and most importantly, impacting your own career in a positive way. I want to thank those of you tuning in live on every Tuesday. If you have a question for one of our guests, uh, you can submit it uh, via Twitter, and we can try to work it in. You just send it to peopleg 2 use the hashtag Talent Talk, and my producer, Mike, can feed those questions in. We also love your suggestions on guests we should have on the show and anything else you think we should be doing a better job at. Uh, also, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast of this show. Uh, iTunes is the most popular way, but Android's got a way as well. Just type in talent talk and you can join the uh, 140,000 other subscribers each week that are downloading this show uh, to tune in to hear what our great uh, guests are, are are saying and, and talking about and even worried about. So we thank all of you who are doing that uh, at your kids' soccer practice on the way to work or whenever you're listening to the podcast. So let's go ahead and get to my special guests today. We have kind of a unique show. We have uh, Eric Severson and Dan. Uh, Henkel, both of uh, the co-CHROs of Gap, Inc., and we're going to have them on uh, here together talking about what they're doing. As some of you may remember, Eric is a previous uh, guest on the show, and he was uh, so gracious enough to do that once that we've talked him into doing it again and bringing his partner along to talk about some of the really unique things they're doing, uh, especially managing uh, HR in such a big company together. So, Eric and Dan, thank you so much for being on the show, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. So tell us a little bit about yourselves and about your company, uh, Gap, in case anyone's never heard of that company, right?
2: (laughs) Well, Gap Inc. is a collection of brands. We're a $16 billion global organization. It was founded in 1969 by Don and Doris Fisher in San Francisco, California. And we are a private label uh, specialty apparel retailer that competes on the global stage. And I've been with GAP for 15 years in a number of different roles. Before our current role, co-leading the HR function, I was the head of HR for GAP Brand, the head of HR for our Outlet Division, and the head of Diversity and Inclusion. Prior to that, I worked for one of our competitors, Macy's, for about eight years. And I started my career back in 1989 as an instructor in English at Arizona State University.
1: Instructor in English, that's, that, that's a departure from where you are now.
2: It is, but actually there's a connection. I think my passion and my focus in the work that Dan and I do is really about optimizing human performance and exploring the art and the science of human potential, right. which is very related to where I started my career almost 30 years ago.
1: Yeah. And Dan, how about you?
3: Well, it's interesting, um, I I did know that about you, Eric, but um, it just prompted me to, um, I'll start with, I I actually got a degree in accounting, um, and so it's probably a little bit strange that I ended up in in this role, but, um, and my career path into human resources, I I wish I could say it was strategic, but it was more, um, whatever you would call it, I, I was sent out on a recruiting trip, I was with Oracle at the time. And they liked the people I identified, and they asked me if I wanted to join the recruiting team. Right, and that was my transition into recruiting or into HR. And then I I got into the field, and I just said, "What have I been doing in accounting?" <laughs> uh, and so uh, so I, I really never looked back, and then came to Gap in 1992. So I've been here for for almost 23 years. Um, and have done all sorts of things. One of the things that Eric and I share is that um, we've we've had experiences in our brands, um, supporting our brands, being really close to the business, and then also had uh, several stints uh, working in the corporate center uh, on in our you know uh, centers of excellence. And so we have a really good sense of. Um, how to deploy HR strategies throughout the the business that actually makes sense uh, for for people that are actually uh, making our business work day to day, and and I did one detour in in my uh, twenty three years here, and I actually was pulled out of HR to run our cor- corporate social responsibility program and I actually did that for 10 years uh, in the midst of it and picked up all sorts of uh, great experience from that. So uh, so that's been uh, my 23 years here.
1: It sounds like you have a very similar story to what a lot of kind of great leaders and organizations have and that is you get in and if you do a good job at something, even if it's not what you thought your kind of core competency was or your main wheelhouse, you, you, you'll you get kind of pushed into that, hey, you did a good job. Can you keep doing a good job yeah. for us? And yeah. I think people lose sight of that. They go, well, I want to be this thing. And they kind of, well, I'm going to have to do all of these things, or I'm going to you No. Know, get into an organization and do your best job. Absolutely. And you may find that's like, I guess as I like going into college, you think, I want to be a business major. Go take business classes. They make you take something else, and you find out, oh, I have a real passion for this other thing yeah. that I would have never known about. Um, I, I can't tell you how many people have said that I, I started one place and then just fell into human resources Yeah, yeah. do you think there's a, 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 any play here between your accounting background and your English background that goes into how you maybe if there's a yin and a yang to how your roles fit in? It's kind of interesting it, it's, I hadn't thought of that but
3: uh, one of the things what I found with my accounting background that has served me well uh, throughout my career is um, first of all I'm you know, I'm very, very comfortable with numbers and, um, and and sort of business speak. And um, I've always found that it's just um, helpful as you're interfacing with your business partners that um, you can speak their language. I'm super, super interested in um, what's happening in business. Um, I'm, I'm someone who wakes up every day and I'm a geek and I watch CNBC and I know what's mm. happening with all the other companies are, that are out there. Um, and I, I think... I think we actually do balance each other out pretty um, significantly if we think about um, how we uh, leverage the various strengths that we have. Um, And I I think we're similar stylistically. What I tell people is we're similar stylistically,
1: um, but we actually are very complementary when it comes to our our strengths. Right, right. Well, Eric, when you were on the show a few months ago, we talked a little bit about this unique setup uh, with the CoCHRO. So can you speak to your own specific role in this equation and how you kind of balance each other kind of, you know, I guess, kind of adding on to where he started.
2: Sure. Well, this this role has been an evolution for us. Really started a couple of years ago when Dan and I were both reporting to the chief administrative officer of the company, Eva Sage Gavin, and her responsibilities were growing. There a number of different functions, and she appointed Dan and I to be the co-chairs of the HR leadership team and essentially take care of the day-to-day operations of HR. Mm-hmm. When she left six months later, our CEO at the time, Glenn Murphy, decided to keep that arrangement and keep us as the co-leaders of HR reporting to him. So we've been doing that for the last year and a half. And I think we started by collectively, together, owning the HR strategy and long-range plan and our relationship with the CEO and with the board and the CEO's leadership team. But we still were doing a lot of things Separately. So we had two separate leadership teams made up of the HR VPs who were each of our direct reports, right. um, et cetera. And since then, we've learned a lot about how to optimize our effectiveness and get even more out of the synergy in our relationships. So I think, Dan, do you want to describe a little bit about some of the evolutions? Sure. Um,
3: it, I think uh, one of the things I'll, I'll just say is. Uh, I did, I, I do think we we walked into it we had our, our day jobs and we sort of had, had maintained our leadership teams and we were doing things a little more separately and then coming together and I think more and more we're finding that the more we operate truly as one um, the more effective and the more impactful we can be um, so we're actually moving toward um, uh, soon we'll we'll actually share an office um, so we we uh, right now uh, we're on the same floor but um, we think there would be a real advantage for us to just being together. Um, we have daily check-in meetings. We have um, we've, uh, uh, we bring our team together as a whole. We're going to be actually starting something new where the touch based meetings we have with our own team. Um, Eric's been doing separate touch meetings, and I've been doing separate and we've said, why? Let's just, you know, they're all senior leaders within human mm-hmm. resources, let's do them together. And so it's just, it's, for us, it's just, um, we do have our own roles and responsibilities and we divide the work, but um, we are also trying to be uh, connected and combined um, where it actually makes sense to do so. And um, if I need information that Eric's working on or vice versa, um, I think we've been getting better and better at at how to share that information and make sure that we're
1: um, yeah. operating seamlessly and to get back to what you were saying uh, Eric about originally having this sort of co- temporary co uh, position that was given to each of you and then that kind of eventually turned into this more permanent thing do you do each of you were you happy about that initially or were you each vying maybe competitively to have taken that position from each other and then I mean was there anything like that in that
2: it, it There wasn't, actually. Um, At the time, our CEO, Glenn, was clear with us up front that he favored this co-leadership relationship. And as long as he was here, that's the way it was going to be. So we decided to learn from it and make the most of it. And really what it's stood for, I think, in the organization is uh, a role model and an opportunity for the organization to learn about how to benefit from the value of collaboration. So as a corporation, our new CEO, Art Peck, has articulated a number of uh, of leadership and cultural behaviors that he believes are winning behaviors. And uh, one of them is collaboration. And so in the interest of being more agile as an organization, moving more quickly, we're striving to do things more collaboratively. And Dan and I are really endeavoring as the leaders of HR to be that, to role model that, to show people at a living example of two people acting in synchrony as one, how that might be done, and how that can increase efficiency and effectiveness in the organization to compete.
3: I I, I just thought I would add, right before this experience, I was um, actually the head of HR for Old Navy for one of our brands. And uh, we had an experience where um, our president for Old Navy left the company. And we had interim co-leaders of Old Navy for um, almost an entire year. And so I, and I really believe that sort of was meant to be I, because I got to see firsthand how that co-leadership worked and, and what we did to um, make that co-leadership and that partnership more effective uh, for the brand and for for everyone in the brand. So I tried to bring some of those learnings to the table, and one of the things that you know I tell people is to trust is um, paramount. If you don't have that, then um, then actually can't be in this kind of a situation, and uh, and then not having a big ego, I think that's another big thing. And so to your point around vying for the the top role and that kind of thing, I think if you had that sort of inclination, you know, co-leadership may not be. You Um, right for you wouldn't work
1: well i think this type of thing is maybe something that somebody might come up to come up with a creative idea that sounds good but in practice will it really work i mean can you get two people that can actually work together that aren't competing with each other there's not a power play there's not uh even your staff kind of dividing you two, right, going to one person for, for permission for certain things, another person for others. I mean, there's just some challenges there for, for each of you. So do you find that as you kind of break up some of the different responsibilities, do they, are they done so um, strategically based on your uh, things that you're best at, or are they broken up differently based on maybe some of your experiences or you know, some of the different divisions that you have already kind of had experience with, or maybe all of the above?
2: think it's some of both. So I think it depends on the circumstances. There's time and opportunity that's a factor, who has the time and the bandwidth, who has experience with that particular challenge, and who has passion and energy for it. So I think as we look over the last couple of years, uh, one of the things that we've learned about this model is that when we work together well, we can accomplish often twice as much as either one of us could individually by really being thoughtful about prioritizing who does what. So I think we have a few examples of this uh, over the last couple of years. Dan, do you want
3: to sure. talk about a couple of them? So uh, shortly after we we uh, started this, we made an, uh, an announcement um, on minimum wage, where we were increasing the minimum wage. And it ended up being um, a big announcement for us, and it actually drove quite a bit of work. And at the same time, uh, we were launching a really significant um, um, executive assessment protocol uh, that, that the board was highly engaged in and really took quite a bit of time. And because there were two of us, um, Eric focused on the executive assessment protocol and all the interface with the board, and I was able to drive this minimum wage um, uh, project working team. Um, and we were able to move these things forward really quickly and successfully. And we found ourselves saying, you know, could we have done that? Um, Or perhaps would we have had to say, let's press pause on the minimum wage work. Um, And we said, no, we we can actually do this. And there have been examples actually throughout our experience together where it seems like we've always been juggling a couple of really big things and the ability to focus on a big thing and not have to um, uh, try to divide your attention um, I think it's just made us do better work and actually faster work. And, yeah, you know.
2: I, I would also add to that that a big part of an HR business leader role like ours is the service you provide to your leader, in our case, the CEO. And it's sort of an it's an individual contributor part of your role. It's the in-the-moment decision-making, counseling, coaching component of the job. And one of the things we've learned through this experience is that by having two of us and by being like-minded and aligned on the issues and philosophies and perspectives that matter to the organization, we are providing twice the amount of access to the CEO. So as Dan said, our offices for the last couple of years have been just on opposite sides of the floor and the CEO sits in the middle. So if one of us is busy with someone, he goes to the other, and he's able to get the same answer either place he goes, Mm -hmm. but it gives him total access. Similarly, if one of us happens to be traveling and we're on a plane, he has access to the other. So I think one of the ways it's fed speed and agility is the ability for us to be very accessible to all of our business partners, including our CEO um, on much more of a 24-7 kind of basis. Yeah, and I
3: would just add to that, um, you know, the other thing I I tell people is, you know, being CHRO, it oftentimes is, it's described as one of the loneliest positions, uh, (laughs) because you you really can't talk to anyone about some of the really sensitive work that you're working on. and we have this luxury uh, where we can actually talk to each other about the work that we're doing. Um, and obviously, we're connected with every single thing that's going on. Um, and so we're not betraying any confidences. Um, so that's been a huge, huge thing for us. And then I would also add, um, uh, shortly after we, we started this, um, I had a, a family emergency and had to disconnect from work for a period of time. Uh, and then Eric had a, a very a, a long, well-deserved vacation um, that uh, was on the books, and we were again. We found ourselves saying, "Well, we were able to, you know, navigate through these uh, periods right. um, and actually not miss a beat, and I think that's without even
1: you know larger disruptions to the organization as yeah. well. Not to mention keeping that momentum going with it's, these larger projects. Exactly. But I think that's really interesting. The kind of uh, counsel that you guys can give each other as being yeah. co. You know, see cuz usually if you put a c in front of someone's title it's the loneliness immediately ensues yeah yeah <laughs> you have very few people you can talk to really about these problems and you're essentially getting constant you know people, everyone communicating at you but you can't talk to anybody else which is why corporations bring in coaches or you have mentors or things like that but sometimes that can be very it can be a challenge in itself so yes Interesting that as you think about moving now into the same office, are we talking about being in an office with two sub offices? or Are we talking about putting your desks up against each other, or <laughs> not having a desk at yeah. all? Uh, okay, yeah. well, even <laughs> even further, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I actually think you know the idea that we have is that we would uh, one of our offices would become sort of uh, a workspace for our human resources leadership team, mm-hmm. um, and uh, to the extent that we need to have private discussions, we certainly can be in there, but. Uh, otherwise, if we're just officing, um, being in a room, uh, being instant, instantaneously able to communicate with each other about things that are coming to mind, things that we're grappling with, uh, uh, working on, uh, we just think that that'll actually just amp up the collaboration.
1: Right. Well, we're having a great time here uh, interviewing Eric and Dan here at the CHROs of Gap, and we're going to take our first com- commercial. Excuse me, <laughs> our first commercial break. I'll be back right after these quick messages.
3: Donate. Volunteer. Invest. Hire.
1: Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. We are uh, just a quick reminder. You can visit talenttalkradio.com to uh, hear all our past shows, uh, review the podcast, and anything else that you might be interested in. We're just uh, jumping back here with Eric and Dan. And the last time you were on the show, Eric, uh, it was just happened to be this incredible coincidence that I, I do a book club with some HR execs in orange county and in la and we had just read the book mindset and we brought that when you had brought this up uh the last time on the show just again bizarre coincidence from timing that uh, so much of what you talked about that your organization is kind of based on some of these principles and, and the book and the things that uh dr Carol dweck really talks about so maybe you can kind of go in a little deeper into how that really fits into the organization what does that really mean that you know Uh, from that book. What are you guys actually doing maybe tactically within the organization?
2: Sure. So I think just to summarize, the, the real fundamental idea behind growth mindset and mindset psychology is that a growth mindset describes the way of thinking about success and failure that corresponds with the way successful people across any domain behave. So it's based on about 25 years of research across every possible domain, sports, science, music, etc. And at The Gap, so personally, I've been applying this philosophy for over 10 years since I read the book in how I lead both my own team and business team. So an example would be in mindset theory, where most growth comes from that leads to success is in continually stretching oneself a little harder than you did the previous time. It's a little bit like building muscle, that in order to actually grow your muscle, you have to try things continually that are harder than you're able to do. So, what we, the way we do that structurally and the way I've done it with my leaders is continually stretching them as they're in a role. So, for example, continuing to give them stretch assignments beyond the core responsibilities of their job and over time as a leader is in a role, for example, expanding their scope of responsibility. So this is something that as an HR leader I've done for years with my business leaders. Mm-hmm. As a leader leaves, for example, rather than just backfilling that role, we look at whether or not we can divide her responsibilities and assign them to other leaders so that we're continuing to stretch them right. and grow them. The way we've institutionally Manage that to build capability across the organization is through our performance management system. and I think as I mentioned last time, we've completely re-engineered our entire enterprise performance management system, replacing the 15-year-old model that was focused on assigning ratings and distribution curve and those kinds of things and annual reviews and done away with that system and replaced it with a system that is focused on continually raising the bar on performance through monthly performance conversations, no ratings, no annual reviews, and a performance standard that actually is one about continually raising the bar. It's a standard, Mm -hmm. a moving standard. And the intention here is to create an organization that collectively has a growth mindset or in Carol Dweck's
1: language, a winning mindset. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting how you're interpreting that or uh, at least uh, applying that. Because when I read the book, I actually took, what I took from it was different. Um, and, and what you're doing is absolutely correct and right, but what I took from it was how can I interact with my people and my kids and my, everyone in my life differently? How can I give them the feedback and the reinforcement in a way that spurs a growth mindset? So, uh, Dan, maybe you might talk about you know, that part of it.
3: Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. I, I I have to say that when I read the book, I actually found myself there's applications actually at work and at home as well. And mm-hmm. I um, happened to be I used the the, the mindset uh, uh, approach with my son as he was uh, playing basketball, and he was getting frustrated because he wanted to be great from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And I went through this whole thing around how do you get great? Right? Um, you get great by practicing and working. And so I did some different experiments with him um, to actually see um, what would actually propel sort of the type of um, you know uh, uh, focus and effort that I wanted to see with him. And it was pretty amazing to, to, to just see the difference, actually, with mm-hmm. when you actually did that. And, and I, I think a lot of the things that we do every day in human resources, um, they're they're usually kind of life principles that you should be able to apply, you know, across the board.
1: Yeah, um, we've I, I've had just an absolutely fun time, which I never thought I would. I have two teen I have two teenagers that are driving now, that I permit, and the process of teaching them how to learn. I thought I was going to be, you know, putting my head through a wall. <laughs> but instead, by applying these principles, we talked about, what did you do better? How did you grow? What did, you know, your parking was better this time. This was still something we need to work on. We yeah. need to remember, and having that approach gave removed all of the this kind of friction and yeah. the. You know, because I have, everyone always talks about their parents screaming at them, while, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. while they were in the car with them, and it's it kind of changes. So I've been able to take those things and work and, and talk with people about. Okay, this was really good. What you we had this sales call, and this was really good, and here, but I can see the growth here, and here are the areas we need to, to focus on, as exactly. opposed to that wasn't so good.
3: Yeah, well, what you know, does the, that mean? You know, the, one of the things we did uh, this past year, which we're really proud of, is. Uh, we really changed the way that we're talking to our board of directors and uh, we instituted something that we'd call the the talent dashboard but it literally just has all the different things that you might want to be measuring um, as an organization Um, and before I think if we were being honest with ourselves we were going into these conversations and I would say it was more of a dog and pony show basically we're going to sort of trot out uh, the things that we're doing that are working well, um, that are having great success, and so on and so forth, as opposed to um, transparently saying, "Here is kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly," um, and um, it has just changed the dynamic of the discussion. I think first of all, there's more trust
1: um, mm-hmm. because I think
3: if you're a board member and you're, you're only getting the good, right? Um, you know, uh, these are all very, very smart people, um, but it also allows us to then focus on. Um, a, just a richer conversation. So, so, like you said, you know, you're doing this thing and this thing and this thing really well. Great. Um, you know, keep keep that going. But we're noticing some erosion here and here and here. Mm-hmm. Um, what can we do to actually get that better? And I think that's I think that's the name of the game, right? And and you know, we were actually um, just talking about how we've even applied this to our uh, some of the work that we're doing in diversity. And um, we're trying to kind of celebrate where we're actually making progress and make sure that um, the team knows where we're actually making progress, but then also using um, some of this greater transparency to say, but we're still falling short here, here, and here. Um, and so uh, what does that mean? And, and I actually think we're getting to a better, you know, more consistent, more, you know, uh, we're just going to see better results over time because we're having just a more transparent conversation
1: right so you brought up diversity are there some things that you feel like you're doing um, that relate to this growth mindset to really help those those goals in diversity and 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 when I talk about diversity I think it's maybe good to define the context I'm going is bringing in people who think differently who act differently that and can help challenge the organization and and of course by that we want to make sure that that reaches all of these different goals about diversity, but I think that's the biggest challenge companies have is yeah. bringing in people who look like them, who think like them, who will, hey, I want to go right. Ever, let's go right, and that—that's how companies kind of get themselves into a problem. Yeah. So, did you, is that how you feel like it fits in? Yeah.
3: You know, it's interesting. Just to tie into Eric's discussion about our um, uh, new performance management system, um, and, and a lot of these things you find do have this interconnectedness, but. Um, There was just a great article over the weekend um, on the the challenges with performance evaluations, particularly as it relates to um, how women are evaluated versus men. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact of the matter is just in research study after research study, um, oftentimes the things that women are given feedback on, you know, constructive feedback on are the same traits are actually celebrated in in a performance appraisal for for a male. And um, I think using that um, uh, basically a a change in our uh, performance management system um, is actually the right thing to do uh, because we think it's a better way to manage performance. That's also a better thing to do as you're thinking about um, if we want to be the best place to work for women, which we do, um, then we should be thinking about the entire ecosystem. Like, what what is that experience like? And if we're living in a world where, unfortunately, um, uh, evaluations are tilting um, in in a in a direction that are not great uh, for for right. women, and hopefully that changes over time, then what are we doing about that? And, mm-hmm. and how do we change it? And so, I feel like we're looking at. Um, Uh, And and I'll I'll use, actually, this work that we're doing around how to distinguish um, GAP as the best place to work for women. I think we feel like we've been doing all these um, separate actions, uh, but not tying it together and saying, what does this look like when it all comes together in an ecosystem? Um, And what would truly have to be a place, actually, for, for for people to feel completely like this is the best place for them to work? And I think that can be applied really in in all kind of aspects of, of diversity
1: right and, and and making sure that it goes across all levels of your organization not exactly. just let's say the the retail level Absolutely. but at the management level and the executive yeah. level and that it really can can kind of flourish everywhere exactly and it's interesting because you're talking about having this idealistic view of how you want it to happen at the same yeah. time you're dealing with society's ills and how we uh, look at people, how we judge people, how we expect people to act, but with as many people as you employ, you're able to make some impact, hopefully, within within the community and the organization uh, at the same time. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about having these different people in your organization who might bring their strengths. So uh, for the two of you, do you feel like there are particular strengths that each of you have where you might be um, uh, kind of maybe known for maybe? Uh, The things that each of you might uh, be the champion of, let's say.
2: (laughs) Sure. I think that speaks to the complementarity aspect of the relationship. So I think um, for me, one reference point is that we are a strengths-based organization. So one thing that Dan and I agree on is for years, we've managed through evidence-based practices. So wherever an evidence-based practice exists, we adopt that practice. And one well-established evidence-based practice in HR and human development is a focus on strengths-based development rather than weakness-based development. So some of the pioneers in this area are Donald O. Clifton and, and Marcus Buckingham, who we, we've worked with extensively over the years, and we use several of Marcus Buckingham's instruments. One of those is called the Standout Strengths Tool. And that tool identifies strengths profiles that every individual has. Mm -hmm. Um, Mine, my lead strength profile is Pioneer, which describes uh, a motivation to innovate, to challenge the way things are and ask if there's a better way to do them, trailblazing, that kind of thing. So if you look back, I think at my history, it's where I focus a lot of my energy. So if you think of some of the things we've done in in recent years, like our performance management system that's based on neuroplasticity and growth mindset, or the results-only work environment that we implemented a number of years ago, uh, our well-being focus. We have a whole curriculum around well-being, and employee health and, and well-being. And our MindSpark program, uh, which is our innovation program that drives ideation and innovation in the business, those are all, those are all programs that um, I work with my team to, to bring about. And so I think that's, an, that's a value add for me to the equation. And Dan has those qualities as well, but there are other things he brings to the table that I don't. So I think we get to put these two things together to add value.
3: The, the thing I was going to uh, center on is <clears throat> I mentioned this detour that I had uh, where I was pulled out to work on our corporate social responsibility efforts, and uh, one of the things that, uh, that afforded me was uh, I had team members in 25 countries throughout the world, and we were grappling with um, challenges and issues that actually required not just working internally with various business partners, but we had to work with environmental groups, human rights groups, governments, multilateral institutions. And one of the things that I, I've, I've, I, I feel like I, I honed, one of the skills that I honed was um, the ability to sort of find commonality where you think maybe commonality might not exist. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> you know I, I, I really believe this, I think if you, if you throw a big group together, you can always find that five percent that you actually hold in common uh, that you actually all could get behind and rally behind. Right. Um, and and I feel like I I hone that skill. It's something I'm really good at. And I think I've brought that into the work that we're doing in human resources. Um, I, I I think on a daily basis. And I don't know if it, it, it falls into the standout strengths category, but but uh, I call it organizational navigation. Basically, sort of how do you navigate Um, And this is really in in any situation, if you're dealing with your family, if you're dealing at work, um, you're always going to have different agendas, different goals, different, you know, different everything. Um, How do you find kind of that way to move forward? Um, And I I feel like I'm constantly honing in on sort of, you know, what's the best way to take all this disparate sort of information and then figure out the best way forward.
1: Well, we're uh Going to take our last commercial break here, and we're going to hopefully find out what these two do when they disagree. We'll be right back.
0: When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best kept secret with ninety percent of their business from referrals and repeat customers. For over twenty years, Decision Toolbox's US-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge with the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days, all with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com
1: for more information. All right, we're back here with uh, Eric and Dan of GAP, the the, uh, co-CHROs. And we we're talking to them today about their incredible organization and their unique style and way that they are managing all of the different HR uh, HR challenges here at the organization. So one of the real important things that I wanted to find out is there has to be a time when you two disagree about maybe the right way to move forward or the right way to, to tackle a problem. Maybe it's a personnel issue, whatever it may be. How do you two deal with that? Um, and maybe what's sort of the process or the steps in place and then... You know, ultimately have to make a decision? What does that process look like?
2: So I think uh, just to start with Chris, we have the advantage of coming from an organization where mutual respect is one of our kind of core differentiators, It's Mm -hmm. just deep in the culture. So I think we start from that place of starting with respect. So thinking before we speak. Um, And from there, I think there are a few things that we both tend to practice that really do facilitate reaching agreement quickly without a lot of heat and one of those i would say is is curious inquiry so i think what we both naturally do is rather than starting from a place of saying well i just don't agree if i don't agree with a position that dan takes on something maybe it's um, how to deal with an employee issue or the position we want to take on a policy, instead of just saying I don't agree, I will stop and say, so Dan, why do you think that? Tell me more about that, genuinely wanting to know. And oftentimes I'll change my point of view, but not always, but by opening the door, I'm not starting out at a place of, uh, de- of, of um, stalemate. Right. And I guess kind of lastly, I would say that we both maybe through our years of experience have learned that if you're going to make a partnership work, it takes give and take. I would say, I don't know very many people who've been in a long-term successful relationship of any sort where one partner always wins. Mm -hmm. Um, i do know some people who always want in their relationships and those people are divorced now (laughs) Um, and so i think whether it's a romantic relationship or a business partnership like this Mm -hmm. one what dan and i often start is thinking about what really matters to each of us and we spend a lot of time getting aligned in common philosophically on what matters to the gap but when we do do disagree so for example this uh, this last couple of weeks we were preparing a really important discussion for the board and I don't think we agreed on every single slide that we are going to put into the presentation Right, but sometimes you just decide I'm going to let that slide I think one of the things we both do a lot is say to ourselves do I want to be right or do I want to have a productive relationship that adds value to the business mm-hmm. and if you really are about the latter sometimes being right you just need to let go. Dan said earlier um, a lot of being in a partnership is learning how to let go of ego and recognize when ego is driving you rather than your common goals. So I think where we've started is being super clear on our common objectives. And I think part of what helped that was a couple of years ago, we built with our HR leadership team, with insights from the business, our uh, HR and our talent long range plan, which outlines our long-term objectives of building a talent pipeline and a high-performing organization. And by starting from that place where we are in complete agreement about the vision we're trying to achieve, the path for getting there, it really reduces the number of important things that we can disagree about. So the things that are left are petty, and I think we're pretty darn good at letting go of the petty.
1: When you talked about this kind of example of you know, people who don't do that well get, you know, end up getting a divorce. I mean, if you think about having this, uh, if you look at it from a marriage perspective, you know, you can go back and you and your partner be arguing about what to do with the kids, but when you go out, then you give a united front that's right. to them about what's happening. So do you feel like that's an important component, for Dan, for you, for, for the organization, that the two of you, in the, in the end, then kind of come forward with this united front position?
3: I, I definitely think so, and I, I was just going to share uh, an example of... <clears throat> so. Anyone that knows Eric knows that the the way that I I describe Eric is that he can see around corners, and and, Mm -hmm. um, he's a futurist. And and oftentimes when I find myself saying, I'm not sure I really agree with um, what Eric's saying right now, uh, part of it is just because we've been working together so long, I'll stop and say, okay, am I I responding this way because um, it just seems so out there? And so I'll go through this little bit of a, a journey where I'll say, okay, what he's describing is likely how it's going to end up in five years, ten years. Um, so, and, and I found that time after time after time, Eric's more right than he's wrong. Um, so then it's more of a saying, like, it's it's really what you're saying, Eric. It's like you're, you're, you're aligning on that bigger, broader vision. Mm-hmm. And then you're having more of a conversation around... What's the best way to actually break this down and actually get it done? So, so that's the kind of conversation sometimes we'll have. It's like, okay, so I'm with you here, um, so we're aligned, uh, but I'm having a struggle of figuring out like how we're actually going to get there, and might we try something like this? Um, the other thing I'll, I'll actually mention is I think we're good at listening to our team as well. So, you know, if you're basically saying, okay, we're coming at this differently. What are we actually hearing from our key leaders in our organization as mm-hmm. well? All right. And and the more information you can put on the table, I think the, the, the better we are at, at, at getting landed on a decision. And it's one of the, sort of one of my philosophies is, you know, you make the best decisions when you're dealing with all the information on the table. So if, you, if you're disagreeing and you're making sure that you're putting all the information on the table that, that you need to make a good quality decision, and then you're reasonable people, um, I think you come to, you know, a good alignment around the path forward.
1: Well, one of the uh, kind of big buzzwords, that, or maybe even two big buzzwords that's been happening in uh, 2014 and now this year, has been around culture and been around millennials. I uh, was just at a, yesterday, doing a, judging an HR hack event, and out of nine groups, seven came to us with a millennial solution around getting them more aligned and into the culture. So these buds were, I mean, out of nine goes it, it was amazing to me that that had this much focus. And whether or not that is real or perceived is a whole other issue. But when we look at this sort of millennial generation coming in and your organization especially, probably having a very high amount of young workers, especially in your retail levels, how do you look at what you want to achieve from a culture standpoint and how that kind of relates into these newer, younger workers coming in your organizations to really uh, – be the right kind of employees and, and, and we have that opportunity to, to make Gab a better place. Where do you guys see that falling in? Yeah, you know, one of the things
3: that... Um, and we've had actually a lot of really rich discussion about culture this past year. And, and again, trying to take that very transparent look at um, what do we love about our culture, what are things about our culture that we think might be getting in the way. Um, and one of the things we've uh, aligned on is... Uh, this culture of uh, what we would call a culture of product obsession and and really being obsessed with product and thinking about, you know, if you want to come and work for a fashion apparel retailer um, and you're not obsessed with product, uh, then, you know, there are plenty of other places that you can work. Sure. Um, and part of, if you can get a couple of those things landed and say, like, this is what we're about, and um, we're going to embrace that and encourage that. And um, we're going to, as we're looking for talent, we're going to be looking for that. As we're talking about what's important to us internally, we're going to be. Uh, that's what we're going to be thinking of front and center. Um, and whether you're millennial or, or in in other generations, if you share that kind of product obsession, um, then the rest of this stuff sort of falls in line. Um, I would just mention a couple other things. I mean, just. I would say aligned with uh, being obsessed with product um, just the importance of creativity and innovation and, and really uh, having a culture that is encouraging that I think has been a big big fo- focus of ours I think the other thing too is um, and it goes a little bit back to the, the growth mindset but um, if you feel like you're more in that entrepreneurial risk-taking uh, kind of environment where you can experiment um, uh, you will, um, it, it's, it's going to be a better culture for you. And, I th- and Erica, I think you want to talk a little bit about some of the those leadership behaviors that we think are so important to our culture.
2: Sure. So I think last time I was here, Chris, I mentioned that our our population is about 80% millennial and post-millennial. And millennials began entering our workforce in force in about 2001, so we've had many years to get to know the values and the motivations of this population who also now make up the majority of our customers. And so that has helped to inform what Dan's referring to, which is the, the five winning behaviors that our CEO and his new leadership team, of which we're a part, have defined as critical success factors for the organization in order to win. And those are trust, collaboration, Empowerment, accountability, and experimentation. And if you look at profiles of millennials, you will see that these five, these five factors are incredibly important to how they view the world and live their lives. let will give you one example of how that plays out currently within the corporation. So if you take experimentation, and this involves the ability to do rapid prototyping and testing to act in a quick and agile way. Uh, in old navy for example we've established that we want to evolve radically evolve the way we bring product to market across the company to make it much faster and so we can make our decisions about product much closer to the time that they're going to be bought in the stores Mm -hmm. and in old navy they launched a project they call the startup which is taking a product um, division accessories and completely from scratch in a small self-managed group remaking the way from start to finish that we bring product to market in order to learn and then scale that. So that's an example of how that that winning behavior actually plays out operationally inside the business. And that way of working is so much more appealing to millennials who are used to working in a much more collaborative, interactive way that is iterative than in the old-school, traditional, siloed way of working that most U.S. corporations perfected in the 20th century.
1: Yeah, and I guess there could be this almost push towards those more siloed things when you have all of these stores. It's almost, I, if we could use some imagery here, it's like these little bubbles inside of a, you know, a glass of soda. You have all of these little micro-cultures that are happening in each of the stores and maybe the districts, and then but then you have this overall larger thing, and so that could be a huge challenge. And how do you make sure you have... Those skill sets you're talking about. How do you make sure, though, that those things are happening while you're still able to push down the overall larger company goals? And company desires.
2: <laughs> so, I can give you right. an example because you're right, the real challenge of a company like ours that is large and global is being able to maintain a consistency of standards and leverage that allow you to be right. efficient and to provide a consistent customer experience wherever the customer's shopping, but also be able to customize your offering in the local markets. So, one example of how we've done this, for instance, in the talent space with our GPS program is in China. So what we wanted for our GPS or our Grow, Perform, Succeed performance management system is to have one universal global way philosophically based to manage performance based on mindset, psychology, and neuroplasticity because it's an evidence-based way, it's proven to work, and we believe it's going to help us win. And if we believe it's going to help us win, we want everyone doing it. So what we've done in the philosophy that we've used is kind of a mass customization philosophy, if you take that term from engineering. Mm -hmm. The idea that you start with a platform that is the same, sort of like the way you would buy A laptop today from Apple or Dell or whoever, where you can start out with the same basic operating system, but then you can add on the accessories you want, whether it's a big sound card or more RAM, for the same price. So what we did with GPS is we allowed the geographies to decide the best way to build on the platform to make it resonate with their people. So for example, in China, the China team determined that that incentives were a very important part culturally of driving adoption. So they created an incentive program with, Cards and stickers that every time the employee has her monthly touch base with their manager and it's successful, she gets a sticker and when it's filled up, she can redeem it for a right. prize. And in other markets, that wasn't needed to drive success, but in, in the China market, it was really important. And we had a very, probably the highest rate of adoption and enthusiasm for the program anywhere in China. So I think it's an example of how you can have both consistency and effective adoption and local relevance if you use a model in this case that kind of mass customization model
1: yeah i mean those are completely different ideas you're not only dealing with you know the word traditional word of culture but you're reaching your own internal culture and i can't even imagine that kind of incentive program working here in the united states it would almost be the opposite effect but yet there i can say because you it's very very different the way which we're brought up what we're thinking and if that's If they have the control to say, hey, this is going to work for us here, and it's going to work here, but you can do something else over here and something else in Europe or wherever, that's pretty remarkable if you guys can allow that kind of different little processes it's almost like little experiments all happening in different parts of the lab but you're still able to make sure that the overall process and the overall values of the company and standards i think as you you, you said are, are being maintained right yeah and
2: i think it was learning from the research we did we in addition to the academic research we talked to close to 30 different organizations who've been experimenting with new performance systems. And one of our learnings was that you had to be able to mass customize, that it didn't work to just let every part of the company do its own thing, and it also didn't work to have one-size-fits-all because what we learned was one-size-fits-all fits fits no one.
3: Right. Just a couple of things to add to that. that so I think both of us have had a chance to work in almost every single part of the business. And I always say that there are these ties that bind, um, that, that you know, even if we want to think, um, if you're sitting in Old Navy, that it's really different than being in Banana Republic. At the end of the day, there are certain things that just tie us together as a, as a company. We recently did, in 2014, an analysis on um, <clears throat> pay equality and how we were paying women versus men. And um, we started with a look at um, the US and uh, we, we had a result where uh, we could say that we were paying women and men equally for equal work. And then we said, well, I wonder how that applies outside. And we were working with an outside firm and uh, to vet all of the information. And they said, OK, just before you do the analysis, you should just know that um, you know we have some issues here in the United States on pay equality. But it, it gets even worse when you look at some of these other countries. So they they were just preparing us. Um, For a result that might look really different, and it was kind of a miraculous thing. We we did this analysis across the board um, in in not only the countries where we're we have retail operations, but even in the countries where we have sourcing operations, and it was the same result. And so we had I had been interviewed um, by a, a publication on on basically these results, and and one of the questions was so. Did, did this just happen by accident? That was the question. Mm-hmm. Did this just happen by accident? And my response was, it, it's really the opposite of an accident. Basically, you can't get that kind of result just by happenstance. You, you, mm-hmm. There have to be these systems and processes and values that, that sort of bind you together. But then you have to have um, the flexibility uh, to, to basically just say, look, we're, we're not all operating in the same construct, in the same culture. And and I think we've navigated that effectively.
1: It sounds like it happened as a result of other things, right? Yeah. Instead of being an accident, it wasn't a result of a directive that came from the CEO. Yeah, yeah. It was a result of this, you know, your values and the culture yeah. and the way in which your organization operates that, of course, that's how it would be. Yeah. Right? Maybe you said maybe not perfect, but, you know, it, it would be real, probably a heck of a lot better than most organizations might be able to report. I mean, it's something that's been a, a pretty big, hot topic. So. Um, Well, I really appreciate uh, the feedback that both of you have been giving me. This has been uh, fantastic. I know one of our favorite questions I want to make sure we ask here before we go um, is, uh, are there any books that either of you are reading that you might share with our reader or our listeners? Excuse me.
2: Sure. So uh, I'm reading right now The Talent Code, subtitled Unlocking the Secret of Skill in Sports, Art, Music, Math, and Just About Anything Else by Daniel Mm -hmm. Coyle. And it's really a follow-on in the research of uh, mindset psychology and why successful people are successful. And this just is really part of my never-ending passion for where success comes from and how to scale that within organizations to help individuals and teams um, tap into their inner potential and be as successful as possible
3: and I am I, I actually brought two books um, and uh, one is called The Dan Other Dan gets extra credit he actually brought the books to <laughs> did, the interview I did I did I, did. I just <laughs> thought you know the props would be uh, but the one of the books is called The Other Westmore and uh, the subtitle is One Name Two Fates and um, it's, a, it's a the author is Westmore and um, he actually profiles um, himself um, he's been very very successful in his life and then he Profiles another Westmore who actually grew up in, in incredibly similar circumstances, um, uh, similar neighborhoods similar everything and he, he dissects basically um, sort of what happened you know why why did he end up being incredibly um, successful and the other Westmore ended up in prison for murder um, that 's the the story and what he talks about is just the importance of um, Mentors and and key people in mm-hmm. in a person's life. It doesn't have to be a parent. Doesn't even have to be a family member. But you have someone taking um, a special interest in you. If you think about that special teacher that people have had, right? Or that special, you know, whatever it is. And then he basically just says, like, with the, the intervention of these few key people in his life even though he had the same circumstance he, he ended up in a very very different um, situation so it's it's been um, just interesting to contemplate um, and and then I'll give a plug for my other book which is um, called Leadership Wisdom um, the author is Robin Sharma and it's uh, it's the eight rituals of the best leaders and um, he is one of my favorite authors and he, he writes in parables and um, tries to make it a novel, but with lots of really good, rich leadership wisdom in it, and I would highly recommend it.
1: Oh, that sounds fantastic. A lot, a lot of great uh, suggestions. Uh, I'm thinking a talent code I may take for the the book club. they have already asking me. I've forgotten uh, what's next month's uh, choice, so that <laughs> might be good, because I have had a few people recently bring that one up. It sounds really interesting, but all three are, are some of the like great books, and I just want to know how that guy maybe got the other Westmore to agree to be the... I don't know if the villain, but the, you know, the negatives kind of story. <laughs> that would have been a challenging conversation to have. So, um, hey, thanks both, uh, both of you for uh, having me here at the headquarters and allowing us to interview you both and, and learn a little bit more about the organization and how the two of you are kind of doing this very unique thing. Uh, it's really been uh, uh, quite interesting, and I'm sure everyone listening will really enjoy the, the story and, and the wisdom that you both have given. So thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank
1: you, Chris. Tune in uh, live next week, uh, Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My guests will include Rebecca Shambliss. She's the owner and strategic partner at Pride Staff. And Scott Shea, Managing Director and Talent Acquisition Staffing for MUFG uh, Union Bank. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.